This is Second Look. I'm Bob Levicky, WMRA's News Director. Thank you for listening this afternoon. I am grateful for your company, and I hope you are staying dry and safe. Do stay tuned. In the next half hour, we have a preview of a much-anticipated visit to JMU by a longtime civil rights activist turned climate activist and a review of the week in Virginia politics, plus a look at a performance near Richmond bringing to life the story of an enslaved mother who took her children on a dangerous journey to freedom more than 150 years ago. But first, for those of you who could not make it to our Books and Brews events last week, it was a great topic. So uh, it's five o'clock somewhere. Why not set up your own little Books and Brews right there in your living room? Maybe grab a beer or your favorite beverage, and settle in for this conversation with our Books and Brews guest this month. There's a honky-tonk bar outside of Winchester that defines rural America, country music, and old-time tradition. It's called the Troubadour Lounge, and it was owned by Jim McCoy, a local country music legend who was the first radio DJ to play Patsy Cline on the air. When author John Lingan went there to find Jim, what he also found was a town searching for itself. John's book is called Home Place, A Southern Town, A Country Legend, and The Last Days of a Mountaintop Honky Tonk, and it chronicles his time with Jim at the Troubadour. John was our featured author for last week's first books and brews of the fall season, but before he came to our area, John spoke with WMRA's Chris Boros. John Lincoln joins me now to talk about the book. Hey, John, thanks. Thank you so much. So when you first stepped into the Troubadour, what was your impression of the place? I was really blown away. You know, I, I didn't really quite know what to expect. There aren't too many bars like that in the world, and certainly not uh, too many where I come from in the in the D.C. suburbs. Maybe I was expecting something a little uh, hokier or kitschier or something, but it, it is that. But it's also very much a living, breathing place. And were you welcomed right away, or were they like, who's this new guy? <laughs> I was not, by any stretch, the first writer to come up and meet Jim and his wife and see this place that they had built up on the top of the mountain. He was very ill at that time, and I think there was maybe some skepticism from a couple members of his family, like, this is the last thing we need, but Jim lived for this stuff. But from the beginning, he was certainly just uh, arms wide open, as I'm sure he was with, with dozens of writers before uh, before I ever arrived. I'm on a Like a foolish clown Still racing those blues That you left with me Wondering if I'll ever be free And Jim McCoy was the owner of the Troubadour But he was the first guy to play Patsy Cline on the radio Is that right? Yeah, Jim was born just a couple years before her He was born in 1929 He worked at the radio station WINC And hosted a very early morning show on the weekends And had a situation where you could go and pay a couple bucks uh, to sing on the air She didn't have the money but auditioned for him in a hallway And that was sort of an important and famous component of Patsy's origin story Yes, I'm wondering if I'll ever she sang on that WINC show, that was in fact the first time that she'd ever been put on the radio. And she was 16 at the time. This was in 1948. Jim passed away about two years ago. I'm assuming his spirit and his memory is alive and well in that bar, yeah? It sure is, yeah. There was, um, you know, they'd been talking about selling it for at least as long as I'd been going up there since 2013. 
I think he was reluctant to do that because he wanted someone who might keep the place up and uh, not just sort of bulldoze it and build a McMansion up there or something. So you've been back since Jim's death. Is the vibe still the same? Yeah, very much so. It would be hard to gentrify a place that's sort of tucked away from everything. I found some audio of Jim singing, so let's listen to that. Did you ever get a sense from him that maybe he was a little disillusioned, that he never really made it as a country star? I struggled with that when I was writing the book because I think his decision to stay in Winchester rather than, say, go down to Nashville where he knew a lot of people and was sort of a known quantity, he suffered some heartbreaks. There was a an album that he made in Nashville about the mid-60s that literally just was recorded and then lost at the record plant. So if I go to the Troubadour tonight, what will I find? One big thing that's been happening since Jim's passing is that they have had a lot more sort of like event nights. So I've noticed that they've recently started having uh, some heavy metal nights and uh, you'll have a great time. What do you think Jim would say about that heavy metal? (laughs) I think he would probably growl and say that it's not really his kind of thing, but he was a savvy enough business owner that he wouldn't turn away a paying customer. I can say that for sure. John Lingen, thank you so much for your time. I've enjoyed this. Thank you, Chris. I really appreciate it. Thank you all very much. We didn't have much time for rehearsal, but I wanted to do that. Find out all about upcoming Books and Brews events at WMRA.org. We've got some good ones coming up. Nearly 60 years ago, Gerald Durley became a young civil rights activist. Today, he's a climate activist, and his core message is that the two struggles are one and the same. Durley is scheduled to give a free public talk tomorrow evening at JMU called Race, Faith, and Climate Change, How Global Warming is a Civil Rights Issue. WMRA's Andrew Jenner talked with him and has this report. Right now, Gerald Durley's in San Francisco for the 2018 Global Climate Action Summit. Next week, he's off to New Orleans to speak at a historically black colleges and universities climate change conference. But in between, he scheduled a stop in Harrisonburg to talk about climate change through the lens of civil rights. In 1960, I joined with Dr. Martin Luther King and Andy Young and others in the civil rights movement. At that particular time, we were concerned about civil rights, human rights, and voting rights. So I see the same struggle that we faced in the civil rights movement 50, 60 years ago has been tantamount to what we've got to do in the climate movement now. Durley, speaking by phone from his home in Atlanta, has quite a resume. Pastor, basketball player, Peace Corps volunteer, federal government official, university dean, and more. Until about a decade ago, though, climate change wasn't on his radar. It was the furthest thing from my mind. I could care less about a polar bear or tree huggers. I was concerned about police brutality. I was concerned about the high rate of teenage pregnancy, the inaccessibility to health care. But then I began to do something very important, connect the dots. Climate change is an equal opportunity destroyer. We all have a constitutional right as well as a civil and human right to having a decent environment. 
Durley was first invited here for a local NAACP fundraiser on Sunday. While that's sold out, he'll also speak on Monday, September 17th at JMU's Festival Ballroom A. The 7 p.m. event is free and open to the public. My message is very simple because we know the science. Everyday people want to know, what does this mean to me in terms of my health, in terms of my job, in terms of my family? And if we can individually be committed, concerned, convicted, and converted, then we can go ahead and really have a movement that's necessary to make a change. For WMRA News, I'm Andrew Jenner. Weather permitting, Dr. Durley still scheduled uh, for that appearance open to the public tomorrow evening at JMU. 155 years ago, a woman enslaved in Hanover County gathered her children, including an infant, and took a dangerous journey toward freedom. The story of Martha Ann Fields was long hidden, but it comes to life this month in a performance at Hanover Tavern, that's just north of Richmond. WCVE's Catherine Comp has more. Off Route 301 is the historic Hanover Tavern and Courthouse. This is the third oldest continuous use courthouse in America. David Deal is the executive director at the Hanover Tavern Foundation. He says when courts convened once a month, the area was filled with people. There would be all kinds of things going on in the courthouse green. Gambling, drinking, partying. But for many, this was a site of tragedy as their children were taken from them and sold in the slave trade. Storyteller Valerie Davis looks at the giant oak trees on the courthouse green. If the trees and the grounds could talk, the first thing they would do would cough up blood. This is where Martha Ann Fields saw three of her children sold. She was an enslaved cook at the tavern and on the plantation. Ann says Davis, she was faithful, driven, and wise. She was a strong, tenacious, capable, phenomenal, spirited, loving wife, mother, sister. Davis is a playwright and historical interpreter. She was doing a short presentation about enslaved workers on the plantation when she was given a book, The Indomitable George Washington Fields. And I read it from cover to cover, I think, three times. The book is by Cornell Law Professor Kevin Claremont, and it includes an important discovery, the autobiography of Martha Ann's son, who detailed their years of enslavement and escape. And if it weren't for that book, we wouldn't know. We wouldn't know. Because there are no records here at the tavern. Using that primary material, Davis's presentation grew from seven minutes to more than an hour. This month, she's debuting a one-person play for two nights at the Hanover Tavern. I remember the first time I saw Washington. Honey, my knees got weak. An important part of the story, says Davis, is to show the loving relationship between Martha Ann and her husband, who was enslaved on a plantation four miles away. Washington was so proud of his children. Every time he'd come by, he always had a gift for them. We always promised each other that we would take care of our children as best we could. At one of Valerie Davis's performances, she had an unexpected exchange. A woman came up afterwards, shaking and crying. Her great-great-grandmother was Martha Ann Fields. And the hair on my arms stood up. And she said, I feel like I just met my grandmother. She said, you just told her story. Davis's play is titled From Tragedy to Triumph. She'll embody Martha Ann from enslavement and escape 
to the post-war years when the fields built their home and careers. Her son, George Washington, was the first black student to graduate from Cornell Law School. Another son, James Fields, was the first black Commonwealth attorney for Newport News. And the, the audience will see her grow from being an enslaved woman to being a free, regal woman, mother, matriarch of her family. Valerie Davis says it's not easy to play the role of Martha Ann Fields, but she says it's necessary so people remember history and learn from it. And so I do this so that people know that history is repeating itself, and it's a history that people don't want to talk about, and we have to. We have to talk about it. We have to give these people a voice. Their stories have to be told. They have to be. For Virginia Currents, I'm Katherine Comp, WCVE News. All last week, uh, news reports here on WMRA and elsewhere were filled with pleas by emergency management officials to prepare for Florence, and uh, we provided a checklist for you. But honestly, did you prepare for the worst? Did you get to the store just in time to find empty shelves where you hoped to find bottled water and peanut butter? In general, how good are we at preparing for disasters? Well, one UVA professor analyzed records from thousands of grocery stores, and he reached some surprising conclusions. Virginia Public Radio's Sandy Hausman reports. We live in an evacuation zone should a hurricane strike. Are you prepared? The warnings begin in June. Hurricanes are coming. But at UVA's Batten School of Leadership and Public Policy, Professor Jay Shimshak says most people ignore advice to prepare. He studied data from more than 3,000 grocery stores in nine states over a 10-year period, before and after hurricanes. It's information compiled by the Nielsen Company, best known for TV ratings. They also collect information every time you go to the store, and they scan it, beep, beep, beep. All that information is collected. We were able to get that data to analyze it. He and colleagues at the University of California at Davis said some people stock up, but most, especially those in low-income areas, those most likely to need help after a storm, do not. We found that sales of bottled water batteries and flashlights increased quite dramatically after hurricanes made landfall. Fortunately, stores can often meet the demand. The truth is, if that stuff's going to be available and I'm going to be able to get to it, maybe it is reasonable for me to not prepare and wait until I absolutely need these things. Others, he says, may just be in denial. There's an ostrich effect. Often people, when faced with really unpleasant things, will bury their head in the sand and just sort of ignore it in hopes that it goes away. Now he and his colleagues will move on to another analysis to find out how much price gouging goes on and how much alcohol is sold before hurricanes. I'm Sandy Hausman. All right, well, let's uh, wrap things up once again for this week's show with Jeff Shapiro of the Richmond Times-Dispatch talking with Craig Carper and our partner station, WCVE, in Richmond. Jeff, though Virginia is supposed to be spared the worst of Hurricane Florence, Governor Ralph Northam says he's taking no chances, and neither should Virginians. Clearly, the hurricane is shaping up as a test of gubernatorial leadership. The governor, of course, is standing by his mandatory evacuation order for most of the state's Atlantic coast, and that, of course, includes Northam's birthplace and home, the eastern shore. As I said, this is a test of the new governor as a crisis manager, and it is a role voters expect, but perhaps it's not one on which they 
focus until maybe they're nervous or concerned about the safety and health services a lot of them take for granted until they actually need them. This is one of those life and limb moments that people tend to remember, moments during which they are grateful for the services they receive from the state or angry over them. Put another way, they're assured or not that state government works. Now, there is a professor at the leadership school at the University of Richmond, George Gothels. He makes the point that a lot of this demands a measure of theater by leaders, that they must be highly visible as they fulfill the responsibilities that accompany crisis. This is why we've been seeing and hearing a great deal of Ralph Northam since last weekend. House Republicans seem increasingly nervous over redistricting. Yes, Speaker Kirk Cox is now telling a somewhat impatient federal court that the House will indeed submit new boundaries for those disputed 11 African-American majority districts by a deadline of October 30th. Of course, if Republicans have to, and I say if Republicans have to because, of course, the Speaker has asked the U.S. Supreme Court not only to scuttle that October 30th deadline that was set by the trial court when it overturned those districts in June, but he would like the high court to overturn that decision as well. Nonetheless, the speaker has indicated to the trial court that necessary committees will be meeting later this month. The legislature will be back in mid-October if necessary to fashion a new map. And of course, that is going to have to get by Governor Northam, a Democrat. And if he does not go along with these boundaries, the trial court could end up drawing them and presumably would do so without regard for party. And the Brat Spanberger congressional race here in the Richmond area is getting particularly nasty. Uh, yeah, they're getting down to where the dogs can get to it, as a friend of mine in Georgia once uh, <laughs> said. Brad, of course, the Republican incumbent, has been getting some help from a super PAC tied to Paul Ryan, the retiring House Speaker. And it's running a very controversial television ad that spotlights Spanberger's job as a teacher in a Muslim academy in Northern Virginia. This was before she was hired by the Central Intelligence Agency. And this school has generated a lot of unflattering attention. A couple of its grads are suspected terrorists. Chuck Schumer, the Senate Democratic leader, has said it should be shut down. It's what the ad basically says that has Spanberger and Democrats so steamed. It says that she keeps bad company, that she's essentially on the wrong side in, in the war on terror. But she is firing back with a couple of tough commercials of her own. They include uh, testimonials to her work at CIA, uh, editorial commentary from the Washington Post that the Republican ad is way out of line, even Republicans appearing on camera singing Spanberger's praises as an intelligence agent. One thing we haven't seen from Spanberger yet is she is not attacking Brad over his bromance with Donald Trump. And that may be a big deal in the Richmond metro area where distaste for Trump is deep and broad. But in the Republican-friendly countryside, which is supposed to be Bratt's insurance policy in this race, that's very much a reason for voters to support him. And in Hampton Roads, a Republican congressional incumbent is once again the issue in his reelection campaign. 
Yes, we have talked about how Scott Taylor's campaign helped get a spoiler candidate, an independent by the name of Sean Brown, actually a former Democrat, to get her on the ballot in Virginia's second district. The idea clearly was to bleed votes from the Democratic nominee Elaine Luria, now a judge in response to a lawsuit brought by Democrats raising questions about these activities, said that Taylor's efforts in behalf of Brown represented, these were the judge's words, out and out fraud. One expects to hear that in a television commercial in the next couple of weeks. That judge ordered Brown's name removed from the ballot. The Virginia Supreme Court this week affirmed that decision. And the upshot of all this is that Taylor, who is running in a district that was drawn to elect a Republican, now has to answer for at least the perception of attempting to manipulate an election. And voters presumably are sensitive about that these days. After all, there's a federal investigation underway into possible collusion in 2016 between the Trump campaign and Moscow. And a House Republican study on school safety, which was commissioned as a reaction to the Parkland, Florida mass shooting, is going to jumpstart a debate on a topic it tried to avoid, guns. The speaker, Kirk Cox, announced this study earlier this year. He underscored that it would not focus on firearms. Of course, Democrats and others immediately took that as a concession to the National Rifle Association. Now, this study included some pretty obvious recommendations, more armed police in schools, stronger mental health services, closer screening of students, improved electronic surveillance in classrooms and corridors, and this, outfitting classrooms with high-tech whiteboards that could double as bulletproof shields. That alone guarantees that there's going to, again, be a very noisy debate on guns in schools. Thanks to Jeff Shapiro, political columnist at the Richmond Times-Dispatch. Jeff, we will catch up again next week. Stay safe. Stay dry. Well, that is good advice. Support for WMRA's News and Information Fund is provided by Bib Bendali Frazier, Les and Johnny Grady, Klein May Realty, Eugene Stoltzfus Architects, Joy Loving, Janet Tretner, Nancy Barber, Ham and Jim Huggins, an anonymous donor, and by a grant from a donor-advised fund of the Community Foundation of Harrisonburg in Rockingham County. On our website, you'll find more about all the stories that uh, you heard on today's show. It's at WMRA.org. That includes photos and hyperlinks you can follow to learn more. All our stories are archived at that website. To support local news on WMRA, go to the website, Mouse Over News, then click on News and Information Fund. Please also send in a donation to our general operating expenses. Just click on that Donate button. Help us out with our fall fundraiser. You'll be hearing more about that this afternoon. But not too much. You know, it's a more news, less noise fun drive. You're not missing anything. I'm Bob Levicky, WMRA's news director and morning edition host. I'll talk to you in the morning. Enjoy the rest of your Sunday. Stay dry and stay safe. Jeff Shapiro was right, you know.